This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is episode 32, in which Harold serves a foreign emperor, part two. Well, Harold is still in Constantinople, or at least serving the emperor. He's going to make it uh, to some pretty interesting places today. So sit tight. We are in for a ride. This is the tail end of Harold Sigurdsson's life in the South. I hope you enjoy the show. There once lived a man so reviled that his own people never sought answers as to his sudden and inexplicable disappearance. In fact, his people celebrated his absence. It was a dream come true for nearly everyone he ruled over. His name was Hakim, son of the respected Caliph Aziz of the Fatimid Caliphate, centered in Cairo, Egypt. Hakim was born just before the turn of the first millennium, and when he was very young, his beloved father lay dying. His father looked upon his son through eyes who were knowingly looking upon his boy for the very last time in this life, and he told his son to go outside and play. The boy probably sniffled and walked out, climbing a tree, knowing what was happening, but not wanting to believe it. A little while had passed, the sun no longer overhead, but crept toward the tops of the palace buildings all around him in the courtyard. The boy's hair danced in the wind in the warm Mediterranean breezes of Cairo. Suddenly, a voice spoke from below him. Come down, young prince, the voice said. It was gentle. The voice of a member of his father's retinue, actually. It was the voice of someone who withheld information. Hakim climbed down skillfully and looked up at the man the voice had come from. The boy said nothing, but his eyes, beginning to well up with tears, seemed to say, Yes. The man knelt down to get on the boy's level, looked down at the grass with a sigh, and then looked up to deliver the news that the great caliph had died. You, he then said, are the new caliph, my new caliph. The man stood up in front of the stunned boy, put a hand on the child's shoulder, and led him out of the courtyard to the outstretched arms of the boy's Christian mother. Standing in the doorway, her face hurt, but pride not letting a single tear slide down either cheek. This day, in the year 1000 CE, marked a turning point in medieval history, the day Hakim became caliph of the Fatimid dynasty. The impact this young man would have would be felt for two or even three generations. In fact, some would say his impact is still being felt exactly 1,000 years later. However, at first glance, this kid seemed okay. Admirable, in fact. Widely respected historian Simon Sebag Montefiore, in his definitive history of the holy city called Jerusalem 
a biography. Rights of Hakim. So for the next few minutes, to give credit where credit is due, most certainly due, actually, the information I present here comes mainly from Montefiore's book. He writes, quote, He adored poetry and found his own house of wisdom in Cairo for the study of astronomy and philosophy. He prided himself on his asceticism, eschewing the diamond turban for a plain scarf. And he even traded jokes with poor Kyrenes in the streets. But when he started to rule in his own right, there were soon signs that this mystical autocrat was unbalanced. He ordered the killing of all the dogs in Egypt, followed by all the cats. He forbade the eating of grapes, watercress, and fish without scales. He slept by day and worked by night, ordering all Kyrenes to follow his strange hours. Some of this beyond reproach, such as challenging the circadian rhythm, something that is deeply ingrained genetically in human beings, not just of himself, but also of an entire city. But other edicts were just baffling, to say the very least about them. Killing every dog in the city could have a beneficial effect on a city's overall sanitation, but to kill them is simply over the line. And cats? Well, for those that know Egyptian history and culture, you are well aware of the reverence ancient Egyptians had toward the cat. And Muslim or not, cats were still quietly seen as semi-divine creatures, at least for those scholars who held on to those ancient sentiments. Now, as for grapes and watercress, maybe he, Kim Jong-un, does his people into ignoring what he himself didn't like. These behaviors, I should add, are not a curious attribute of ancient, under-civilized people. As I had mentioned, the current leader of North Korea molds his population in some of the most ridiculous ways, such as all males getting the same kind of haircut as he. History is full of characters like Caliph Hakim. Eric XIV of Sweden was so paranoid that he murdered people who laughed around him and was convinced for a time that he was his own brother. Ferdinand I of Austria was known to only say the words, I am the emperor and I want dumplings. Ivan IV of Russia, known as Ivan the Terrible, at 14 threw every high-ranking member of his court to a pack of starving dogs. Emperor Caligula of Rome. Now, I know this podcast toes the line, but I don't feel in good conscience with the possibility of children listening to even list one of the atrocities committed by that nutcase. Suffice it to say that Caliph Hakim was in company of historical nutcases. Hakim went on to ban wine, which struck at the heart of the Jewish and Christian traditions and practices. But the real kicker came when he banned Easter festivities and observance itself. This had a devastating impact on the tourism industry around the Holy Land, let alone in Jerusalem in particular. Merchants began closing shop due to lack of customers passing through the city, and many were either forced into poverty or forced to move out of the Holy Land altogether. For those Jews left in Jerusalem, in my own opinion, the most haunting thing was to come. When I read this edict, I was appalled as it cut dangerously close 
to an atrocity of our own 20th century. Caliph Hakim ordered all Jews in Jerusalem to wear a wooden cow necklace as a constant, painful reminder of the story of the golden calf. See, the golden calf is arguably the most shameful thing of things in Jewish history. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus to be specific, when Moses disappeared up to Mount Sinai and eventually returned with the Ten Commandments, Hebrews left at the base of the mountain in the meantime began creating idols of the bull. This bull had been interpreted two main ways, the Egyptian god Apis and the Canaanite god Baal. Both were golden, both were bulls. And I find that the answer might lie in the mixture of the two dominant interpretations. Remember the context of the Hebrew people when led by Moses. They just escaped captivity in Egypt, and they were entering the land of the Canaanites. But the shame comes when Moses came back down with his message from God and witnesses what state of faithlessness his people had sunk to in his absence. Moses commanded it to be destroyed immediately, and Moses admonished them harshly. It stood as a symbol of the proclivity for Hebrews to stray from God's way, which happened repeatedly throughout Jewish history, according to their own holy books. At the time of Caliph Hakim's devastating edict, Jews were actually doing well in terms of their relationship with God, so their enforced wearing of this necklace was nothing more than a slap in the face. In addition, as if such treatment couldn't get much worse, Hakim ordered all Jews to wear a bell as well. You know, as a way to warn everyone that a Jew was approaching. And I, I can't help but compare this to our own recent history, a scar on the human story we all share, whether you are Jew, German, or otherwise. Hakim's edicts towards Jews are hauntingly reminiscent of the Star of David patches Adolf Hitler commanded all Jews to wear within the domain of his National Socialist-ruled Germany. I think of Marcus Zusak's incredible tale, The Book Thief. He wrote of these Stars of David, both worn and painted on Jewish doors in Germany, calling them, quote, infected sores on the injured German terrain. End quote. One can think of Jerusalem in the same light around the year 1000 CE. Hakim's treatment of the Jews in Jerusalem was an infected sore on the injured Middle Eastern terrain. This was, you don't need reminding of, the holiest place among the Al-Al Kitab, or the people of the book, which is, again, the term Muslims use to describe Jews, Christians, and Muslims directing them to remember the connection they all share and to tolerate all of God's people. I mean, if you think about it, it's like saying, okay, they aren't followers of the prophet, but they are at least on the right track by sharing the origins of the prophet's faith. It's a beautiful sentiment, if you ask me, and Caliph Hakim quite literally spit in its face by singling out one group among the Al-Al-Qutab in a disgraceful and shame-inducing way. Hakim went on to destroy synagogues, even ordering Jews to help in the destruction. And not just in Jerusalem either, all over the territory he ruled, Fatimid territory. 
But when these Jews were diminished in public standing, he soon saw the prosperity of Christians. In response, he inexplicably took out his anger on the entire Jewish quarter of Cairo. He ordered the Holy Sepulchre be brought down in Jerusalem. This behavior continued to the point that reports of Jews and Christians pretending, as Montefiore puts it, to convert to Islam. Through all of this, his tyranny, as often happens for whatever reasons, began amassing a following. Yeah, some people actually saw his power and influence as a divine quality. Caliph Hakim was imbued with the spirit of Allah. They believed this young man to be the incarnated God of the people of the book. In fact, these people still exist today, 1,000 years later. And they're known as the Druze and live in modern-day Lebanon, having had to escape when Hakim suddenly disappeared one February night in 1021. Before that, however, Hakim wasn't finished. It's said that Hakim learned of these fake conversions, so he decided the best way forward was to root them out by systematically murdering Muslims. Yeah, he turned on his own people, not trusting a single one for the actions of a few. Sunnis, Shiites, traditions like Ramadan itself, these were all on the chopping block, so naturally, Muslims banded together, putting aside their differences with each other for a time and with the Al-Al-Khattab and creating a massive backlash aimed directly at Caliph Hakim. So Hakim did a complete reversal and allowed Jews to rebuild their synagogues and Christians to continue creating economic prosperity in exchange for their support in his little war against Muslims. At 36 years old, Hakim went out for one of his many midnight journeys in his usual plain clothes and riding a simple donkey. He never came home. It's an enduring mystery to history, what happened to the mad caliph, as he's called. But a few days later, a donkey was found wandering outside of Cairo with nothing but a bloody scarf draped over its back. With Hakim missing and knowing the situation and the feeling toward the caliph by the vast majority of the population throughout the caliphate, well, people moved on pretty quickly and just assumed someone had taken matters into his or her own hands and dispatched the caliph. Why talk about a caliph who lived in Cairo? who doesn't directly fit into the narrative story of Harold Sigurdsson of Norway? Context. Yes, again, context. Context matters. Context matters in everything. After capturing Edessa and fighting Muslims as far southeast as Baghdad, Harold was ordered by his emperor, Michael IV, to move on the Holy Land, specifically the piracy occurring right off the coasts of the ports of Acre and Tyre, among others. Not only was it stifling trade in the area, but it was also making the already dangerous pilgrimage for Christians into Jerusalem, well, far more dangerous. So, off he went, toward the source of much of the problems around the Holy Land. The effects of the piracy, as I said, had a rippling effect, Along the way, he probably saw the increased prices in goods, much like 
we see the same today when theft is high for certain products. This, of course, tended to flare tempers, as we weren't talking about CDs in the 1990s in in the record stores. Yes, kids, there were stores where we bought music. Crazy, I know. But back then, we were talking about some of the most basic goods like grain and cloth and so on. Having hit the coast, he took to the seas, as his ancestors did before him, and he fought Muslim pirates off the coasts of modern-day Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Egypt, Cyprus, and Turkey, which proved successful as reports of the pirates' demise were scarce. However, the reports left behind of commercial resurgence in the area abound. In the meantime, his emperor and the ruling caliph at the time saw eye to eye on the piracy problem, and with Harold's work, they agreed to a meeting and treaty negotiations in Jerusalem. Michael IV recalled his Varangian contingent away from the Mediterranean. They were to join him as his personal security force during the negotiations. So again, off he went toward Jerusalem toward the spiritual beating heart of medieval Europe and the Mediterranean and the Middle Eastern worlds. Along the way, Harold fought a number of skirmishes that cooled some of those hot tempers, resulting in a tenuous peace around Jerusalem, which seemed to quell others beyond and, and set the Holy Land's residents a bit more at ease, allowing a touch of prosperity to return in the coming years. It was at this point that we hear of Harold's, of Harold actually entering Jerusalem itself. He is recorded as witnessing this peace treaty between the emperor and the caliph. The proceedings took place in a noble, noble house in Jerusalem. There's no telling that I can find where this was exactly, but we might gain an understanding of the city before we just assume. Jerusalem wasn't a booming metropolis. What we see today is a far, far cry from what Harold saw. But no, it was nothing like other cities at the time, like Constantinople, Cairo, or Baghdad. Despite the important and highly regarded writing throughout the Middle Ages, all of that seemed to make it out as. It was a city for sure, housing something like twenty-five to 30,000 residents. Jews, Muslims, Christians, from everywhere, all living side by side, inside the walls and outside. And the walls, these were, these were oddly shaped walls, actually. You know, the, the, it was rectangular in a north-south orientation, but not a perfect rectangle, mind you. It was perched, as were most ancient and medieval cities, towns, and forts, upon a hill or low ridge for defensive purposes. Jerusalem, though high on a ridge, was not exactly in a strategic place when looking at the region as a whole. So what was it about Jerusalem that gave it permission to occupy the deepest reaches of the human psyche like it did, and still does for a few billion people today? In the Old Testament of the Christian Bible, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 3, verse 17, Jerusalem is called, quote, the throne of the Lord, end quote saying that, quote, all nations shall gather to it, end quote. Old Testament Jews considered, per this quote, Jerusalem itself had a 
magnetism to it that attracts, again, quote, all nations. In the book of Zechariah from the same Christian Bible, in chapter 8, verse 3, it says of the city, quote, Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. In the New Testament of the Christian Bible, John of Padua writes of Jerusalem in his book of Revelations, chapter 21, verse 2 or 3, as the paragon of the perfect city upon the judgment. He refers to it as New Jerusalem, implying that the closest thing we can get to heaven on this plane of existence is the city of Jerusalem itself. He continued with it, quote, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as a crystal, end quote, in chapter 21, verse 11. You know, back in college as a young lost 20-something, I ran across the writings of the 20th century poet, uh, the Syrian poet, Nizar Kabani, who wrote of the holy city some 1,000 years after Harold walked its streets in a poem called Jerusalem, My Love, My Town. He supported, possibly unknowingly, John of Padua's sentiment when he wrote these words, quote, O Jerusalem, the fragrance of prophets, the shortest path between earth and sky, end quote. His poem is exceptional in that it represents the deepest emotions people still today have for the city where God chose to rest. You know, it seems for all intents and purposes, though less so in the case of Islam's creation, that Jerusalem has been a cultural, social, political, and spiritual center of Jews, Christians, and Muslims for millennia. This is a truly ancient city. Everyone of import in these three faiths have visited or lived inside the walls of this city. David conquered this town from the nation of Judah and made it his capital. Solomon, David's son, rose to legendary status as one of its most powerful and influential leaders and thinkers and ordered the construction of its enigmatic synagogue-turned-church-turned-mosque on the site where Abraham nearly sacrificed his son his own son Isaac, as proof of his unwavering faith in God. Jesus of Nazareth rode in on a donkey through a temper tantrum in its temple and was brutally tortured in those same streets and then publicly murdered just outside its walls. And the prophet Muhammad was said to have prayed in its mosque, though there is some scholarly debate as to how he could have worshipped in its Al-Aqsa mosque before Islam had reached the area in such a force that would necessitate the building of a mosque. Honestly, I'm, I'm open to anyone who wants to help me understand that. Either way, whether he visited Jerusalem or not, it would still become a major center for Muslims. Today, I read there are around 400,000 Muslims alone living in its metro area. And make no mistake, as this will have certain consequences in the decades after Harold's brief stay. From the year 636 to the year 1099, Jerusalem was commandingly under Muslim rule. And it wasn't easy for Jews, Christians, and Muslims alike to keep it under its domain either. Walls were a must in those days, and high walls they were too. But high walls or not, the city, as I said, was built upon a high ridge line. 
The city was long and thin and didn't really radiate outward until much later in its history for safety purposes of its citizens, making it at times a a pretty densely packed city. Like Constantinople, the city built walls outside of the original walls as it expanded, which allowed the growth to safely happen. And this growth would eventually push it beyond its original mountaintop position. Beyond its western wall, down the slopes, lie the Tyropoean Valley. Hope I pronounced that right. And beyond its eastern wall lies the Kidron Valley. The Gion River was, at, was its main source of water, and tunnels had been built to provide the city with the necessary water too. But there were also the Spring of Gihon in that same valley, as well as the Enrogel in its south end that also supplied fresh water. There were gates throughout the city, but they were pretty heavily guarded, especially during times of strife and warfare, as was the time when Harold accompanied his emperor into the city. David's Gate, named after one of Jerusalem's greatest leaders, was built alongside the citadel on the city's western wall. The gate itself lay at the center of an area in the walls that caved inward toward the city's center, the Dome of the Rock looming large, high upon Mount Moriah in the background. The caved-in area put the invaders at a serious disadvantage, which was obviously why it was built that way. David's gate opened up to the Christian quarter of the city with residences and marketplaces funneling people eastward toward the temple complex straight ahead. One would see the old churches as well as new churches having been rebuilt after that disastrous reign of Caliphakim a decade earlier. And sadly, one would still see the rubble from some of the destroyed churches that have yet to be either cleared away or repurposed. And almost directly across the city, past the temple complex with its majestic buildings and holy plazas and churches, was the Gate of Mercy, though in traditional Christian writings it was called the Eastern Gate, and was quite possibly the most trafficked gate on any of Jerusalem's external walls that I've found so far. It was also the gate through which Jesus of Nazareth entered the city that fateful Passover weekend, humbly again sitting sitting astride a donkey, fulfilling prophecy after prophecy with every step the beast took toward the temple complex. This gate, the gate of mercy or the eastern gate, due to its orientation facing east, that just over the Mount Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley, the sun would rise every morning. It would also gain the name of the Golden Gate, too. To the south of the temple complex, Harold would have entered the Jewish quarter of the city, which was much the same as the Christian quarter, except that it also was the site of the original town of Jerusalem, a truly ancient place still called the Lower City, as when the city was originally walled in, it was lower than Mount Moriah. Between the Jewish and Christian quarters of the city, and throughout it really, Muslims would have built their own neighborhoods and smaller mosques, but the marketplaces were for any and all, making them the real melting pots of the city. There were two gates along the south wall that were the beginnings of roads that cut the city into three nearly equal north-south oriented sections. These two roads, one running along the western part of the city through the Muslim and Christian quarters, and the other running through the Jewish quarter and along the temple complex on the eastern side of the city, these two main thoroughfares converged at a single gate 
on the northern wall, a plaza and gate called the Gate of the Column. On the city's east, outside of the walls, down in the Kidron Valley, was the Karaite quarter and other neighborhoods of ethnic or non-ethnic identities were beginning to build up once again in the unprotected areas in the valleys, in the valleys outside the city too. Though the late 1030s was a contested time for Jerusalem and the Holy Land in general, it was still a far cry from the horrors and injustices of Caliph Hakim. And as I've already said, though the city and its people still bore its physical and psychological scars, it was a city and a people on the mend. Business was coming back into the area, which is why it was so important that Harold help tamp down the piracy that was holding progress in the area hostage. And Jerusalem's markets and growing populations were testaments to this upward swing of the pendulum. Traders, philosophers, scholars, dignitaries, carpenters and architects, and most importantly, pilgrims. They were all returning to the area. So the peace treaty between the Byzantine emperor and the reigning caliph was essential to allow the Holy Land to flourish once again. And Harold? Harold bore witness to it. In fact, it's said for a time, Harold and his fellow Varangians were tasked with protecting the first wave or two of southbound pilgrims coming from Constantinople as a security measure to test the mutual observance of that peace deal. After securing Emperor Michael IV's return to the empirical capital, he accompanied Christian dignitaries to Jerusalem and back. But it wasn't long before Michael IV needed Harold's expertise and might elsewhere. The Holy Land seemed to be returning to a symbolic equilibrium that was a hallmark of the Islamic Golden Age, and Jerusalem, like Baghdad and Cairo and Cordoba, were testaments to this religious and cultural tolerance insofar as they emerged eventually from the Islamic Golden Age bigger and more prosperous than when they entered it. So it seemed Harold's responsibilities in the Holy Land had come to an end. But before he was to leave for good, I can't help but wonder whether he stopped to pray in its churches or even take in the history of the temple complex itself. Though he was also a scald, was he enough of a scholar to be fully aware of the history of the streets he walked through in 1038? Did the people he spoke to tell him their first-hand accounts of life under Caliph Hakim? Or what it was like upon hearing the news of his disappearance? Would they have told him the rumors of how the caliph's murder might have been his own sister's doing? I mean, she did have Zephyr, Hakim's young son, immediately named caliph, even before the donkey with the bloody scarf had been found. Who knows? Caliph Zephyr would be a welcome reprieve from the paranoid and violently schizophrenic times of his father. Zephyr would quickly reverse nearly every one of his father's disastrous policies, returning the Fatimid Caliphate to a polity at ease. Had Harold prayed again at the city's many rebuilt altars? And if so, what might a man like Harold pray for? Was he a man who, deep down, humbled himself in front of his God? Or was he a man who was self-confident enough to see himself as master of his own destiny, and merely thanked his God for the opportunities he was able to take advantage of. Essentially, 
Who was Harold? Was he the bloodthirsty maniac who also enjoyed poetry and storytelling? Or was he a poet and storyteller who used his skills in warfare to meet his ends? Well, we will never, ever really know, will we? But it's interesting to dive into the minds like Harold's and roam around for a while, isn't it? Remember way back on episodes 21 and 22 of the show? At the beginning of this narrative bend in our podcast, we're calling Here Come the Normans. It was a very quick refresher. The episodes were called Of Empires and Mercenaries, Parts 1 and 2. And they centered on two central characters in the late 1030s and early 1040s. One was named William de Hauteville. The other was the incomparable, the embattled, Byzantine general named George Maniakes. If you remember at the Battle of Syracuse on the island of Sicily, when George Maniakes was taken by surprise by the Saracens in their walled port city of Syracuse, the heretofore unknown eldest Hauteville son, William, became an instant legend whose name would sweep across Italy and Normandy, earning the nickname Iron Arm for the way he threw a shoulder into the emir of Syracuse and then almost literally cutting the man into two, thus saving Maniaki's day, his Sicilian campaign, and most importantly, his reputation. Around 1040, due to Maniaki's treatment of Stephen, brother-in-law to the emperor, he was recalled to Constantinople. At this point, we fast forward a bit, Harold had served under the hot-headed general for two years, but was now serving his replacement, Michael Dokianos, a far inferior military leader, and it showed. Much of Maniaki's territories in Sicily were once again lost, and Apulia began showing signs of unrest among its Lombard populations, too. In fact, there was a Lombard uprising in 1041, led by Melos of Bari's son, Ahiros, who, along with some friendly Normans, including the Hautevilles and Dringos, successfully tipped the scales away from Byzantine power in Apulia. Quickly, the Normans and Lombards would work together and successfully take Ascoli and Venosa, among other regions and towns and ports around Apulia and into Calabria. But soon Maniakis returned with a vengeance, replacing Michael Dokianos, who wouldn't make another recorded appearance for another nine years or so, as he battled and eventually lost to Pechenegs north of Constantinople. The moment Maniakis arrived in Apulia, again, again, <laughs> order seemed to return, though those Normans and Lombards were still chomping at the bit to continue their conquests of Apulia. But Maniakis quelled the violence in southern Italy with the help from his faithful Varangians, though, curiously, sans a large number of them, including one major Varangian, Harold Sigurdsson, who had been recalled as well but not for any misdeeds. The emperor, by 1041, well, he'd suffered greatly from his epilepsy, including being partially paralyzed. Michael IV would announce, even in his current condition as emperor, that he was to invade Bulgaria, a region of the empire that has been relatively cowed for going on two decades at that point, but had recently, almost out of nowhere, declared a man named Peter Delian, the new Bulgarian czar in Belgrade. He sailed from Apulia 
across the Adriatic Sea and landed in modern-day Serbia. As Harold made his way mile by dangerous mile eastward toward his emperor, who was already invading Bulgaria from the east, he knew that his far smaller force of Varangians had an incredible challenge ahead of them. In effect, Harold and his few hundred Varangians were tasked to fight their way through the back end of the Bulgarian defense, who was amassing nearest the emperor for obvious reasons, centering around sheer numbers. As difficult as it was, Harold at first had the advantage of surprise, but Varangians don't have much time after landfall before, well, everyone seemed to know they were there. Then again, Harold always arrived with an advantage. I mean, he led a contingent of the most lethal special forces of the 11th century. And as he approached Michael IV's position in the East, it is said that he faced harder and fiercer and better trained opponents the closer he got. It's also noted that he entered into a state of berserker the closer he got to his emperor too, which pulls our attentions way back to the earliest episodes of this podcast, where we learned about those warrior groups that Vikings tended to gravitate to. It seems that, yes, Harold Sigurdsson was trained somewhere along the way to be a berserker, which, in short, was a state of mind in which a Viking warrior would enter into, voluntary, into voluntarily before battle. It was said that the berserkers were otherworldly, and when looked in the eye, it was as if looking in the eyes of a wild bear or even a god. There are myths and legends about the berserkers, like Harold, who would literally turn into a bear. But take that for what it's worth, I suppose. Whatever the truth of it is, Harold joined his emperor eventually. He would quickly learn that his emperor had been, well, having a tough go of things, including a big loss to Delian at Thessaloniki, which resulted in him bugging out and leaving his treasury behind for the rebels. But he seemed to be amassing a stout force of Byzantine soldiers in the meantime, as well as Harold's Varangians, loyal Bulgarians, Greeks, and even Normans, if you can believe it, after everything that's happened in Apulia so far. In addition to this, rumors had it that an opponent to Delian's power had entered on Delian's side, a cousin of his, claiming to also be a descendant of the famous Bulgar leader Samuel. So a little dissension among the ranks could certainly play into Michael's favor. They re-entered the fray near the site of the recent devastating defeat, again, Thessaloniki. With over 40,000 soldiers at his back, Emperor Michael IV pushed his way into Bulgaria and eventually landed a decisive victory near Lake Ostrovo in modern-day northern Greece. It was between Thessaloniki and Ostrovo that Harold Sigurdsson would, in Bulgarian and Byzantine lore, become known as Harold the Devastator of Bulgaria hearkening tales of Basil II around the year 1018, as he wrapped up his 20-year campaign against those Bulgars. Delian's fate, well, it's unknown exactly, though rumors have him killed in action, melting into the background of history, and even imprisoned in Constantinople. Either way, Michael IV's forces tracked down the rest of Delian's generals, one being a defector of Michael's, and quickly put an end to the war by the fall of 1041. That's less than one year since, they, since he started it. 
Between the increasingly debilitating epileptic seizures, the partial paralysis, the dropsy, the gangrene in his legs, and the awful rigors and physical and emotional tolls that a campaign exposes any person to, well, it was a miracle Michael IV made it back to Constantinople alive. Alive and a conqueror. He was, however, very, very close to death. On his way home, though, he lavishly spent Byzantine coin on new churches throughout Bulgaria and northern Greece, which was common among leaders when they knew death was nearing. Michael IV never had a child of his own, but he had a couple years earlier adopted his nephew, who was to be his heir. And on December 10th, 1041, just just months after stamping down a serious rebellion and securing a modicum of peace for his empire, this son of a ship caulker, Michael IV, died. It was almost instantly, like a flash of lightning or, or a sudden thunderclap upon the death of Michael IV, that Harold found himself in prison. There are so many reasons that are thrown around as to why he was imprisoned, and I'm inclined to think that somewhere in all of them mixed together is probably the truth. The first theory is that he wished to marry into the royal family of Constantinople, but Empress Zoe emphatically declined. One source says that she threw him, she threw him for, in, into prison for the audacity of such a request, while another says that Empress Zoe herself wished to be wished to marry Harold, but he actually declined. Another theory is that he made moves on an upper-class woman, the wife of a local leader. So far in Harold's story, though, we don't really have a reason to believe he was this kind of guy. It's not, no, it's not to say he wasn't, considering our sources, but I'm inclined not to believe this one. Uh, it just seems too easy, you know? But this last one is interesting. It says that he was imprisoned for having raided the deceased emperor's treasury. Well, now, this is not an uncommon practice among both Varangians and their Roman predecessors, the Praetorian Guard. When an emperor died, they, they, got, they quickly got first dibs, and no one was the wiser, and it's said that Harold actually had already partaken in this three times, as he had served under three different, or excuse me, four different to this point, emperors. Something tells me that Harold's fate in this moment was a mixture of these, the noble woman possibly referring to Empress Zoe herself, but it could also be due to his status as head of the Vrangian Guard as well as coming back from campaign after campaign, a successful leader and warrior, even earning his own nickname during the last one. Emperor Michael V might not have taken any chances with this guy, though. While Harold sat in a dank, dark, and dismal Byzantine prison, Michael V sent Zoe to a nunnery in Prinkipo, an island in the Propontis. But the people had come to respect Zoe Porphyrogenita, and before Michael V knew it, the palace was surrounded by residents of Constantinople and demanded, they demanded her return and his exile. He agreed by the skin of his teeth, actually, joined a monastery and even took the vows, but his story wasn't quite finished. Being confined was not something Harold 
was ever okay with, and he no doubt received help from the outside, someone who was very loyal to him, and he escaped that prison in Constantinople. He may have lost many of his Varangian warriors who naturally joined the new emperor's guard, but Harold was, <laughs> well, Harold. He joined a revolt happening, learned of Michael V's fate. He visited Michael V at his new home, yanked the young emperor or former emperor out of a church service, and it's gone down as legend that Harold Sigurdsson himself gouged out Michael V's eyes, leaving him blinded. He was also castrated, that is, Michael V was, so there's that too. This was in April of 1042, and Michael the monk was dead by August. In the meantime, Harold returned to Zoe and requested his leave from the Varangian guard officially. She promptly dismissed his request. He's far too valuable. And he was again imprisoned. But what was Harold to do? On what authority did Zoe decline his request? Well, Zoe was now the sole empress of the Eastern Roman Empire. And whispers reached Zoe's ears about Harold's plotting an escape. And on the night he made the move with two ships and a loyal following, including as much plunder as they could muster on the way out, Zoe ordered the chains to be raised, blocking his escape. One boat scraped the chains as, they were, as the chains were rising, and the boat sunk. But Harold's ship had just passed over. After quickly collecting as many men as they could, he escaped up the Bosporus, sailing through the strait, turning north and strafing the coastlines along in the Black Sea and entering the mouth of the mighty Dnieper River. Harold was on his way home to Norway. It was the spring of 1042. Harold had been away from home for 12 years. He had, in these 12 years, risen to become a legendary warrior in two prominent empires, one being the prominent empire of the day. He, in these 12 years, had worked and fought alongside the likes of Yaroslav the Wise, Emperor Michael IV, General George Maniakis, and Rainolf Drango, and the new legend William Ironarm, that is, William de Hauteville. He had seen in these 12 years Baghdad, Jerusalem, Palermo, and Syracuse, Constantinople, and Kiev, among so many others. In these 12 years, he had amassed no small fortune during this time, most of it coming as a Varangian guard, and he would soon arrive back in Kiev by the fall of 1042. And upon arrival, his friend Yaroslav I, Grand Prince of Kiev, would welcome him and he would hand over Harold's savings that he had earned in Constantinople, and he would even honor Harold's previous request for Yaroslav's daughter's hand in marriage. Harold Sigurdsson, again, was now heading back home, heading back home to Norway. And to think, his story is just beginning. It seems like the throne of Norway was once again in question. Seems like a perfect time for Harold to come back home. But that seems like a story for another time. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Harold finally turning his gaze northward again. 
Please keep sharing this podcast with those you know and on your social media accounts. Don't forget to tag us too if you share us on Twitter at Wheel Podcast or drop a quick line about the latest episode on Facebook, Fortune's Wheel Podcast. We've also expanded to the Good Pods app, so I encourage you to head over there and to stay in touch too. Also, you can email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com and please consider supporting the show on Patreon if you're so inclined. We've strayed a bit from the theme of this season, a narrative bend in our overall story of the late Middle Ages called Here Come the Normans. But come on, Harold Sigurdsson, guy's a beast. How can we not take a look at his early years before moving on? And seems how he overlaps with friends of the podcast, the De Hopevilles and the Goes. I mean, it just seemed like a good fit, you know? On the next episode, though, we leave Harold as he heads home to reclaim a crown he feels is his to reclaim. And we will pick up where we left off with the De Hopevilles in Apulia. William Ironarm was dead by this time, and Drogo de Hauteville was trying his best to rid himself of, the, of his pesky younger brother to another mother, Robert. Robert has a story to tell before we end this season, though. I can't wait to tell you about it. <laughs>